Hello and welcome to another episode of the Game of Loans podcast with me, Sam Norris. And today I'm very happy to welcome Ben Richards to the show. Now, Ben is uh, the owner of Aura Architecture. He's one half of EXP Property, property developer, so has a really well-rounded knowledge of property in general. But he's also a former professional poker player and I was really intrigued on this episode to dig deep into what kind of skills and strategies he learned from being a professional poker player which has helped him in the world of business and property so loads to get your teeth into on this episode now if you do find this interesting um, do be sure to share it with everyone that you know um, and of course don't forget to subscribe rate and review here's Ben Richards Welcome to another episode of the Game Alone's podcast. And today I am so excited that I've got Ben Richards of Aura Architecture on the show. Ben, how are you doing? Very good, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, always good, always happy. As yeah, that's just that's just me. That's my that's my my nice dotage. Room that you're in. Exactly. Yeah, you can barely see anything in the background. It's uh, it's it's great. But um, but look, Ben, you're you're an, you're an architect first and foremost, but you're also a developer. And as I found out recently, um, uh, an ex uh, professional poker player. So for those right. people yeah. that, uh, that that are listening that don't know much about you, Ben, um, give us a quick intro into who Ben Richards is. Sure. So my, I can't actually claim I'm an architect because I'm not an architect. My degree was a master's degree in architectural engineering. So I come at things from more of a, a technical um, side of buildings. Um, a mix between an architect and a structural engineer is the best way of describing kind of who I am as a person. I like solving problems. I like technical challenges. I'm very good at maths, engineering, solving problems. So um, that, that's what I studied. Uh, I then worked for a small architectural practice working on house extensions, loft conversions, very small projects where I was pretty much a CAD monkey, I guess, um, churning out drawings left, right and centre, um, learned a lot about the planning process, learned a lot about building regulations. And I worked sort of in that scenario for about four years before going from like 50k refurbishments, 250 grand extensions to then move into central London, working for the Berkeley Group. So completely opposite spectrum, um, one or well, close to one billion pound schemes in Battersea and Nine Elms, worked on two schemes for the Berkeley Group there. So big infrastructure projects, eight year programs, um, learned a lot about how that big corporate machine worked, um, which was amazing experience the schemes that I worked on I was I feel very grateful for for being part of those and seeing them still come out of the ground now and being finished is awesome um I finished there in 2017 so th coming up three years ago now um is when I left the Berkeley group to start Aura Architecture so I've had that running for the last three years my final six months with the Berkeley group um I actually did my first personal property development. So I owned an end terrace property, I got planning permission to build a two bedroom house on the side. I built that out, project managed that. Um, and a week after refinancing, um, that's when I handed in my notice with the Berkeley groups. So it was like, I've, I've done this. I really enjoyed it. I want to do more of this. I want to start my own thing. Um, so handed in my notice and started or architecture. So that's been running for three years. We're now a team of five. Um, we, generally work for homeowners, again, doing house extensions, conversions, basements, new build, one-off schemes. Um, but we also work with property developers for schemes up to about 25 units is sort of the, the level that we, um, we work at. Um, in London and the home counties, we've got some other projects um, potentially further afield, but we only really get involved in those if it's worth doing. Um, and then two years ago joined, uh, 
with Jack Jiggins, my business partner for my other business, my other business, which is EXP Property Investments. And that's been going for two years. So we've been slowly kind of building our network um, on that. We've done a few sort of keynote talks for various property networks, including Brendan Quinn's. Um, and we've bought three things in the last year. So we're relatively active. We're getting more active. Um, we are building our pipeline. Um, we've got a number of projects which we're hoping to to start um, in sort of Q3, Q4 this year. So um, yeah, that's that's from sort of uni till now, really. Yeah, and it, we were saying off air that um, actually, surprisingly, with with a, with the way that things are at the moment, your architecture business is actually really really taking off in kind of this downtime do you think that's probably because people have actually got got sort of time to to think and plan a little bit more and they're, they're then coming to you to to talk about future yeah, projects that's the way we're marketing it you know it's people will be sat inside their homes right now looking around thinking god i wish i had a home office or i need more space these kids are annoying the hell out of me i need a separate adult reception for me and a playroom for them and you know now is the time to start planning for the the house extension that we've always wanted to do so that's the way we're spinning things. I think, you know, we, we were discussing before about marketing and um, the, the last nine months um, in my architectural business has been all about digital marketing. It's been understanding how we can grow that, understanding how the systems and processes work, pay-per-click advertising, organic reach, you know, social media, all that sort of stuff. So I kind of feel lucky, or well, I guess you make your own luck is, is my kind of thought, but the fact that we've been doing that for the last nine months has really put us in good stead. Now everyone's on lockdown and there are a lot of architectural practices that are pulling back on their marketing. Mm -hmm. um, now only really starting to try and raise their profile. Whereas we've been doing that for a while now and we feel like the momentum, um, momentum is gaining. Um, and we've, we've picked up five projects in the last three weeks, which, Amazing. you know, our target is three a month. Um, and there's a number of other projects in the, sort of uh, in discussion which I, I think think they might come in by the end of the month as well so um yeah i, I feel like uh you know it's, a, it's hard times for a lot of people but i think we've done the right thing up to this point um with our marketing and we're, we're going even harder on the marketing now um, to try and capture some of that market share i just i just i think that just goes to show that that having a marketing side to your business or having a, a marketing hat that you can put on is just, I mean, and I say this to people all the time, every single business should see themselves as a media or a marketing business as yeah. well as their, their in, normal, their normal business. In this day and age, um, it's even more important. You know, your, your digital footprint, your profile online, your branding um, needs to speak for you um, because you will get lost. There's so much noise today. Um, you're going to get lost unless you can be consistent um, and le le unless you can, can grab people's attentions. I've, I've spoken to a lot of smaller architectural practices where, um, you know, they're, they're really, really good architects, but business and marketing isn't their forte. You know, they, they've studied in architecture and, and, and that's what they're good at. But I came at my business from a business mentality. Like a lot of my friends, when I, when I was leaving um, the Burke group said, Oh, you know, you're setting up on your own, you're going, you know, self-employed and all this sort of stuff. And, Self-employed for me is a different type of person. For me, I was I was building a company. That was all that was in my head. It was right. I'm not I'm not doing this. I'm not going to be the one doing a lot of the drawing work. I'm not going to be a sort of sole practitioner. I want to build a company and I want to build a brand. I want to build a team around me and I want that brand to be known for you know the the high quality design led um, architecture that we produce and the quality of service that I want 
you know our, our company and our team to um, to give people so I think it's a different mentality really um, and like you say every company should have a, um, a grasp of of what platforms they're marketing on and how they're doing it yeah absolutely and i think you, you touched on on sort of the, the word brand as well which i think some people think is a bit of a cheesy word but it's so it's so important to to get that and the thing is i think with brand as well and i've i've seen it through just you know my evolution over the last few years of trying to create a brand for mortgages and finance it's, it's gone through various iterations as well because not yeah. you know the, so many people start marketing themselves on social media or digitally or, or we, in whichever which way they want to do it and they think that whatever they put out is like the final product when it's not yeah. it's 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 number one you know when 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 apple launched the iphone they didn't just leave it there um they yeah. launch a new one every six months now because they improve and improve and improve and it's exactly the same and you know what, yeah. what you have now ben which is you know the color scheme is really really clear and fantastic and i love it um you know whenever we go to the brendan quinn events it's everywhere which is great um but that you know that takes a little while to build up doesn't it and and, and get right yeah absolutely i mean if i look back at some of the some of the you know first marketing efforts that i did some of the first videos i mean they're still not great if i'm honest and i know that there's improvement to be made um but i've made a lot of mistakes getting to this point i've wasted a lot of money on on pay-per-click advertising on um you know even even paper you know magazine advertising and things like that which I've tested and it really doesn't work and I've, mm. I've not really been in the right position to do it, but I've, you know, as per what I normally, what I normally like, it's sort of not gone ho, but you know, let's just give it a go. Let's try it and see how mm -hmm. it works. And th the idea of that is that you reiterate, you, you iterate and you test and you, you know, you, that that's the only way you're going to get better. Um, I am a bit of a perfectionist at times. So sometimes I spend too long doing certain things and my, you know, my wife's in marketing and she's she's now helping me out with a lot of my stuff because sadly she's been furloughed from her company but she's now you know marketing director for aura architecture so awesome. yeah, it's great for me in that we're, we're going to be producing a lot more content and she's been working on some videos um over the past couple of days that we're going to be launching um soon so it's all about testing and uh, and, and iterating and moving forward you you kind of got to be uh you, you can't uh, really hold back or think oh what are people going to think about this so you've just got to do it um yeah and yes it's shit first time around um, <laughs> but the more you do it the more confident you become in doing it um the more consistent you are and absolutely I, I, I couldn't agree more and, and I often get asked the question how much is too much um, and I did a little video a live video in my in my social media group on Facebook um, yesterday about how much content is too much and my answer to that is you're, whatever you're going to produce is probably not going to be too much you know unless unless you're like an actual marketing agency you're probably not going to produce too much because the more you produce the more you can test what works and what doesn't the more confident you get in front of a camera as well because a lot of people are like whoa, whoa whoa don't point a camera at me i you know i don't know what to say um and sometimes i do it as well i did a live video on facebook the other day and i just completely lost my trail of thought halfway through and just spent like a, a whole 30 seconds going mm, what was i saying yeah but it doesn't matter you know you just got you just got to get in but the the, the, tr the thing is is that until you actually do it you're not going to have done it and you've just yeah. got to try it do it try it again try it again try it again eventually you'll get some kind of traction you know one person might start watching your, your facebook live video and then guess what you've improved 100 percent um and and you and you go from there and you ask for feedback and and you, you test things and trial things and and eventually it organically it pushes into a, into a very particular direction that will work for you and your business but you mentioned 
you know, about business, You're, you are a businessman, you have started a business and that marketing is part of that. And I've been saying a lot recently, people need to be using this time to work on their business rather than in their business. Sounds like you were kind of doing that already. Yeah. So I've been in business coaching for the last, uh, pretty much six months, I think just to help me have that half a day a month where I'm with a couple of other small business owners sharing ideas and going back and forth with, you know, how can we do this? Looking at the different facets of a business. So, you know, whether that be finance, sales, marketing operations, recruitment, things like that. Um, but it just helps you to focus and it sets goals. You know, every month we set sort of business goals um, and we review them every month to see how we've performed. Um, I think that's important in any in any business to if, if you want to get somewhere you need to figure out the steps for, for how to make that that transition um, and if I've learned anything in the last three years in terms of me it's that I've enjoyed the business side of what I've been doing more so than the design side of things I still love looking at floor plans and looking at um, developments and trying to work out how to get the best out of them or this design feature doesn't work. That design Very, very handy fine. in your business. <laughs> and yeah, it's a good job that I like doing that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been the business side of it that I've enjoyed the most. It's the understanding, you know, looking, I was looking at my, my zero accounts earlier, you know, so I actually enjoy like figuring out, okay, where can I cut a few costs or where am I spending loads of money? And then looking at my Google AdWords and, know trying to figure out how i can improve those and speaking to my seo consultant you know that that side of it is what i've i've really enjoyed the most and you know with with exp property uh, it's a different business but they kind of go hand in hand but it's i'm i've learned a lot of stuff with aura that i can then transition to exp i've set up a you know, a kind of sister company which is measurement surveys so aura surveys which i haven't properly launched yet but we've got a number of projects sort of running along in the side so I, I just I just love it and I, I think um, we, I mean we touched on it briefly earlier and I'm sure we'll talk about it in a bit but but poker was a little bit like that it was tr trying it, I saw it as a business it was like I've got these resources I need to find out the best way of making them into more resources um, and looking at strategy and ways in which I can do that and what is yeah. the optimum play here um, do I take this calculated risk here and, and all of those decisions are, are what I really enjoy about business and entrepreneurship. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think uh, the design side of things has, has been not cast aside, but um, lower down the ranks of what I enjoyed doing now. Yeah, I, I, I actually 100% get that. I mean, number one, I was smiling when, when you mentioned about you get excited a little bit about looking at zero. I remember when I got zero for the first time, I was yeah. sitting in the office and you know my, my, my colleague was sitting opposite me and I was, I was sort of like smiling to myself. I said, what are you doing? I was like, I've just discovered zero. So I've, got, I've put all my cards on it and I just have uh -huh. to press a button and it all goes on my expenses. And, and I, was, I was just <laughs> absolutely amazed by it. And I was just so excited by the prospect of that happening. It's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's what sad so people cool. do, I suppose. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's funny. But you know what, it's, it's true. Because I think of myself, look, the, the, the service that I provide, and I guess this is, this is going quite back. And I mentioned this a lot on the podcast. So sorry, listeners, I've mentioned, I'm mentioning it again. Um, but I always go back to the rich dad, poor dad, sort of cash flow quadrant model of the, what I think is that as an, you know, if I'm, you're, you know, you're an architect, let's say, and I'm a, I'm a mortgage broker and we're both employed. We sit in that, in that little category of employment. Um, but then a lot of people think that they are building a business when they just start doing that job, but for themselves, but they don't, they just, they were just self-employed people. And when you remove that person, then that's it. 
you know, the business is over. It's transitioning onto the other side of that grid into the business owner. And that's where a lot of the stuff, you know, the service is transferable. You know, if you know how to run a business really successfully, and a lot of people are so successful in running businesses, not necessarily whatever it is, because they've got their marketing right. They understand that. They know how to brand things. They know how to, you know, they know they're wearing on assets and liabilities and a financial statement, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And that's the, the, the stuff that if you can get right, the service underneath isn't actually as in as important whatever it is the product that you're selling isn't isn't as important and so many different businesses so many different services that you can offer the yeah one thing i struggle with is I'm, I'm quite i guess this is sort of engineering person in me i'm quite details orientated and i like to solve problems whereas there are a lot of people a lot of good business owners that can just pass that on to someone else whereas i just i just i want to still want to solve that problem but it doesn't really relate to like the business growth or moving the business forward. But I still want to solve that problem. Yeah. Um, I need to sometimes cast that aside and, and just delegate, you know, delegation is key to, to good management and, um, and, yeah. and, and really, and it's building that team around you, which I've had the fortunate, um, I've been in the fortunate position to do over the past couple of years, get a good team around me. So it's so, it's so vital that actually that that point is, is so important. I've, I've certainly seen that. I've, I think you and I share a very common way of thinking in that, again, I love the problem solving. And I've certainly, you know, if I look back on my entire career, the one thing that my managers and, and whatnot have consistently said to me is that um, I'm not efficient with, with how I go about my, my day because I will spend too long trying to figure out the really hard cases. I, if I see a challenge, I want to try and get it done. And I feel so bad if I have to go back to someone and say, this just cannot be done in the way that you want to do it. Um, but when you if, take a step back and you actually think of it from a business point of view, you've got to be efficient with your time. You've got to, you know, you've got to, it's like a bit like the 80 20 rule, isn't it? You know, you've got to concentrate on the 20% that actually is the, is the income generator um, and that's what makes a successful business. And that's probably for people that are in property in general, I think there are too few people that think of things in that way. They think of things in a, um, and it just, they're just so tunnel vision on the day-to-day -day property, you know, sourcing, financing, mm -hmm. refurbing, you know, all of these little aspects, they forget actually that there's a wider business to, to what they're doing. thought about I, I do struggle with that sometimes in terms of um, uh, thinking too much uh, time efficiency is something I'm, I'm just, I'm just not very good at it. I'm actually, when people say, Oh you, yeah, but you get so much done. And I'm like, well, I do. I'm just really fast at doing stuff. And like, I think really fast and I do things really fast and I use technology to, to sort of the best of my ability. But I know that my wife would, her, her skill set is planning, you know, operations, management. She's very good at that. And I sounds you know, like our wives would get on very well, actually. <laughs> I'm just not planned. Um, I, I'm very quick at doing things and I'm sometimes too reactive. I'm not proactive enough in planning my day. And, and Jack, you know, luckily he's extremely good at organization. And that's, that's, I think why we work quite well, you know, he's extremely forward thinking and planned and, I'm very reactive, I guess, um, but just very quick to think about solutions and um, and uh, be efficient in that respect, but just not efficient with my time management. It's just something that I've always struggled with. Um, 
I constantly try new techniques and things and to be honest it just goes out the window and I, I know I know exactly what you mean you know I, you get excited by one thing and then it becomes the obsessive thing that you just want to do all the time for a period of time and then then you sort of move on to the next thing I get distracted yeah yeah that's it <laughs> I suppose that's that's a problem that people are probably struggling with loads at the moment is when, when you're working from home the distractions there's so many distractions there whether it's checking up on the news to see you know what's going on with the coronavirus or you know for me it tends to be that the wife is constantly saying oh Sam have a look at this or let me show you this video that I've found because she's been furloughed as well so she yeah. she's you know at the moment she just bought herself a Fitbit so it's like all she wants to show me is this this Fitbit and I'm like I've got other things I need to be doing, darling. <laughs> um, but um, I, I have, I've, I've written down and I've circled three times the, the word poker in capital letters because I definitely, and, and I only found out this about you this morning. It was just a complete coincidence. So I'm glad I did mention it. Otherwise you might've been able to get away with not talking about it for the whole, whole episode. I didn't mention it in my like two minute intro. I don't know whether I've programmed myself to like not say it. Compartmentalize it. Some people, you know, frown upon it and, you know, uh, it's, it's an interesting topic, but, um, some people see it from maybe not the way that I see it. So, Do you know, it's funny because, um, when I found this out, the first thing that, that, that came back to me was many, many years ago, I went to a, um, a, a mortgage conference. Um, and one of the speakers that they had at this conference was a, a professional or an ex professional, um, poker player. And he actually, he was the consultant on Casino Royale with Daniel Craig. Um, oh, I think I've seen him. Was it a Candor event? Um, it, no, it was just it was just a, one of my one of my mortgage events. So it wasn't open to the public. It was just part of my my network. Um, yeah. But I remember him. You know, usually these events are so boring that you you know by the end of it you, you you're looking around for a rope to hang yourself with. Um, but but, um, but this guy got up on on the stage and started talking, and I was absolutely fascinated. And I was. I'd ne I didn't understand the role of sort of a or the, the realm of a professional poker player. Um, but he kind of showed how relevant a lot of the tactics and strategies, as you sort of were starting to mention, were to a day-to-day -day running of a business and mm -hmm. and thinking as a business owner in terms of strategizing for in, and goal setting for the for the future. So when I found out this about you, I thought this is amazing. I've been wanting to ask people about this for a long, long time. But um, I suppose not to put loads of pressure on you now, Ben, to give us a masterclass, but, but you know, if you can think back to that time, what, what is it that you learned or, or what sort of strategies did, did you learn in that, in that time that are now, you know, absolutely fundamental to how you run your business now? Yeah. So I, I, I do like talking about poker and business and the, and the, the connections between them. I think when I look back at my, my poker playing time and it was, it was, after uni so i graduated from uni and and, and much to my you know parents uh misunderstanding or, or dismay i was like so uh, i've got a master's degree in architectural engineering and i'm going to play poker for a living what do you think yeah um which yeah you know it went down okay i guess but i i'd kind of tested it so between my third and fourth year at uni um i spent two months playing online poker um you know full time or, or what full time in in my poker playing career was essentially three to four nights a week i'd start at six in the evening probably finish two or three in the morning potentially even longer if i've done done well in tournaments if i'm in a tournament tournament the longer i go on the, the deeper i am into that tournament so if i'm staying up until seven o'clock in the morning it means i'm doing bloody well yeah um and i'll talk you through some of those um things but that that was like a tester so i basically said look if i can make two thousand pounds a month 
during these two months during the summer of my third and fourth year at uni um, I kind of deem it as a reasonable thing to do after graduating so I did that I made four and a half grand over those two months and I was like right okay when I graduate I'm going to give it a go and see you know see how it goes so I graduated from uni I played for 10 months um, full-time you know doing that three or four times a week six in the evening till whatever time in the morning um, is that because great. of the you're doing it mainly with American times yeah at the time it was sort of you know when when in America you did have online gambling which they shut down um, that was just the best time to play so there were more games more people better buy-ins better you know guaranteed wins and stuff like that so that was the time that we played um, and it, it was great for certain things you know it, it gave me the flexibility if i didn't want to work i, di I didn't work I, I traveled i went to thailand for three months up for three weeks i went to dubai i went to you know various other places so you know it gave me the freedom to kind of do what i wanted but it's stressful you know if, if you're playing tournament poker full time your kind of winning worm goes sort of win sort of um lose 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 lose, lose big win lose, 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 big win. So I'm, you know, I'm losing 95% of the games that I play, but the 5% that I do play and I make money on, you know, it's, it's a big jump up basically. So it's quite stressful because essentially you're losing all of the time. So you have to take, you know, you have to have that mentality where you're resilient to bad beats and, oh, that person hit a 5%, you know, one in 20 shots of him hitting that card and he's hit it. And I've been, I've been playing for eight hours to get to this point and now I'm out. But that's part of the game. You have to have that resilience and the mentality to say, you understand that. That's how it is. That's the game. That's the probabilities. You move on to the next, next game. And I live with sort of a couple of friends at the time and, you know, I'd play in the lounge and they'd, they'd hear me and I'd say, fuck's sake. And I'd be screaming and effing and blinding. And, you know, one of those things had happened. I'd, I'd, somebody got lucky against me, blah, blah, blah. And I'd be effing and blinding. And then 10 seconds later, I'd be like whistling away. Like, how do you do that? How, how do you go from like being fuming to just back to normal? I was like, well, you have to be. You, if you don't have this mentality, you're not going to make it as a professional poker player. Yeah. So that, that's one thing I think that you need in business and in poker. It's, it's resilience and it's the, I guess, emotional intelligence to uh, understand what's happening think logically about decisions um and not let your your anger get the best of you yeah um bankroll management is another one so you, know, you have to not bet more than your means and uh it can be very dangerous to continue playing at stakes that are you know too high for you so understanding you know that you're only betting maybe five ten percent of your total worth um in, in any one night or any one game, you know, it's, it's making sure that you've got enough, enough cash reserves to, um, to be in it for the long, long haul. Um, strategy is just, is just, you know, you have to understand strategy. You have to understand mathematics, probability people watch Casino Royale and, and see all the, Oh, he raised his eyebrows. So he must be bluffing. It's, it's yeah. bullshit. It's not yeah. that it's, it's about betting patterns. It's about understanding position, understanding sizing of your bets, um, understanding the probability of different cards coming at certain times. And it's weighing up the risk of it's, it's calculating risk, which again is what property development is. It's calculating risk and reducing the risk as much as you possibly can. So it's yeah. 
much information you can on this single one hand to then make a judgment call as to whether or not you want to proceed with it or whether you think the probability of you, know, you winning is so low that you just fold. Yeah. Um, and yeah, risk management, risk mitigation is, is probably the biggest comparison with, with property development because that's what you do as a property developer. Yeah. Um, that's interesting, actually. You mentioned something there. Um, so I suppose you sort of bankroll management and... and this, that, that kind of made me think a little bit. I watched um, a program that I've mentioned to a few people recently that I thought loads of people were watching, but apparently not, not very well viewed. Um, it was called yeah. The Undercover Billionaire. Um, it was a very Americanized uh, program on Discovery Channel about a guy, American guy who ran um, one of a big bank in America or built a big bank in America, you know, Billy, absolutely multi-billionaire. And, um, yeah. and he went to, to, to try and set up a million dollar business in three months, I think it was. And yeah. what, I, what I really enjoyed about that, and this is why I think it's relevant to the, the point you made, was that so many people, um, and especially a lot, a lot of people listening to this podcast, are going to be budding or, or sort of medium long-term property investors. And a lot of people in property, I think, look at the, the longer term, they go, right, okay, I can, I can be a millionaire by being a property investor. And you can. Um, yeah. But actually, it's the 10, 20, 30 stages beforehand that are so important. And this is what I learned from this particular program was that, he knew that he needed to build a million dollar business, but actually he didn't open that business until halfway through the process because he was going, right, number one, I haven't got anywhere to live. So I need mm -hmm. to find a way of making enough money in this short period of time to cover my business, to cover my living expenses for three months. So he went yeah. and he, and he just by the side of the road was finding old rubber tires and selling them on to, to people to make a couple of grand. He used that money to buy a couple of um, old cars from a car lot that was, that was closing down and resold them and doubled his money. You put that money into a, a refurb property project and over in America, you can flip those projects really, really quickly. Um, yeah. Cause it's just half the, the due diligence that lenders do and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so then he flipped that, that up. So it was in stages and eventually got to the point where he had enough money to then bankroll this business and grow this business. And in the meantime, he was building a team in the background and coming up with ideas and branding and, and all that kind of stuff and eventually went forward. So in a roundabout way, I suppose what you were saying about understanding your, your bankrolling is it the same kind of thing that you're thinking right okay there are people over there that are making thousands but i haven't got thousands at the moment so i'm just going to have to make a few hundred and then move on and then i'll turn that hundred into a few more hundred and then i'll make that into a yeah working your way up basically so that eventually you get to up there but you've got to yeah. start small yeah and, and that's for me the only way of being sustainable in anything you know you can't just throw yourself you know, some people make it some people do make that big leap and they're successful, but there are more people that aren't. Um, and the only way really that you're going to be sustainable and successful in anything, I think, is by doing by growing it gradually. So I've said to many, you know, many of our property investors and, and people that we speak to in the property world in terms of what Jack and I are trying to do. We're not out there to go all guns blazing, be around for two years and then fuck off we are in we are both in this for the next 30 40 years this is going to be our life so we don't want to burn any bridges we want to do things sustainably we want to make sure that what we're doing we can continue to do um in the long term um and i think that's so important you know bit by bit and we'll the way that we'll do our our property developments is you know when i had this conversation with um someone earlier like we've got a 2.1 million pound sort of gdv development on at the moment and I'm asking someone who, who we're going to be working with to sort of stack a 20 million pound um, deal. And he was like, 
um, you know, why, why, why wouldn't you take this on yourself? Because I said, for this, we're going to need a joint venture partner in terms of another developer that I think is at that level. And he said, well, why, if you, if you could just do it yourself? I'm like, we could, but I don't want to risk that. And I also don't think lenders, you know, you'll be best placed to say this, but going from jumping from a 2.1 million development up to a 20 million pound development is quite a big jump. And there's, there's a lot of things to think about in that different, different um, level. So, you know, for me, I'd rather bring, again, about risk mitigation, bring in someone that is at that level, that's done it before and has got the team and the um, contacts to do so, partner with them in order to, um, to, to, to work together on that scheme. So everything we do, we're thinking long term, you know, is it sustainable for us to do this? Are we risking too much here to try and get us three steps ahead when we could in the next three years get to those three steps? But we could just do one step a year and just yeah. continue. If you look at, you know, the, the simple one will be Warren Buffett's you know, timeline of, of cash. You no, know, it's steady, 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 compound, 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 boom, there it is. So, yeah. And, and that's, I guess, the way that we think about things. Yeah. Do you know, I, I use the, and you, you were talking, obviously, you, you went slightly into my realm there talking about financing and stuff like that. And, and the analogy that I use, cause I get a lot of, a lot of clients come to me and they say, right, exactly what you, what you've just said there. Oh, you know, I've done, I've done a few, um, a few refurbs. Um, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to build six houses now, but, um, yeah, we oh, should, we, like, oh, we should get funding really easy for that. I'm like, no. Um, yeah, you, uh, it, the analogy that I use is, is when I was a kid, I played super Mario, you know, on, on my NES or my SNES, whatever you wanted to call it. And you didn't just go to level five, you started level one, you beat the boss, you went to level yeah. two, you beat the boss, you went to level three, you beat the boss. That's how my mind works. You know, you do it bit by bit by bit, exactly what you were saying. Occasionally you might, you know, you might get a cheat or whatever, in which meant you could go through the levels a bit quicker or whatever it might be. But I think that's actually a really good way of thinking about just business as a whole. Obviously for me, I think about that in terms of what is financeable and what isn't, or what's likely to be financeable and what isn't. But, um, but just in business as a whole, exactly what you were saying, you know, you don't need to go from level one to level 10 in one year, you know, go from level one to level two. That's absolutely fine. You know, making any kind of progress during a period of time is great. If it means you yeah. miss opportunities because you're, you're, you're holding back, then maybe that's not so good. But on the whole, slow and steady wins the race. It's, yeah. you know, it's as simple so. as that. Seen a lot of um, you know a lot of property developers in the last two or three years that were extremely vocal on on social media that are now bust and and um, and struggling. And yes, there are certain circumstances that might have happened outside of that that's that's caused it. But um, at the same time, it probably wasn't a sustainable business model to run, and they've tried to try to push ahead too fast, too quickly. Mm -hmm. um, so I, th I think there's a lot to be said for, like you say, slow and steady wins the race. I think. Yeah, I, I I completely agree with that. And you know, it's, I mean, it's taken, I'm, I'm 13 years into this. I don't own my own business yet, um, but it's taken me that kind of time to, to, to think about it. And and I know, you know, a lot of my um, my best clients, my best developers and property investors have been in the game a long time and they've made mistakes. They've had to have setbacks, but on the whole, they just, it's just continue small little bits of progress, which I, which I think is um, is vital really, to be honest with you. But um, I wanted to, I do want to ask you obviously about just architecture, um, planning, the importance of that to any property investor, because um, I'm sure a lot of people have um, tuned into this episode to hear your thoughts on that, because I learned the value of a good planner early doors. Uh, 2010, I did my first property development myself. 
um, with my dad, who's a builder as well. And we went in, bought a bungalow, thought it was, it looked pretty decent. We had a good idea of what we were going to do, strip it all out, quick extension out the back, Bob your own call, off we pop, sell it on. A really good friend of ours is a, a really good architect in North London. And he went in and went, no, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And the value, and I'm sure he was giving us mates rates, <laughs> but I would have paid him double because the value that we got from just having a real professional look at that was well it was invaluable to be honest uh it was it was incredible i guess slightly biased having you know owned owning a architectural design practice but the that you pay you know for us are minuscule in comparison to the value that we add if you look at our fees as a as an overall you know our fee might be less than half a percent of your gdv Mm. probably less and we're the ones really that can squeeze the maximum out of the schemes that you've got we've got the experience we've got the teams around us we've got the planning consultants that we work with that are going to make sure that you're not taking two bites out of this planning application you're going to get it first time round because you've gone through the right process and i have this conversation with clients every every week like yesterday i was on the on the phone to someone who said yeah but do i really need to spend two thousand pounds on a planning consultant for this scheme i'm like just look at look at that two thousand pounds you've got a retail asset with some um some uppers if you get four residential units out of this and a small retail unit how much is that asset going to be worth uh, 1.2 million pounds right so you're quibbling over two thousand pounds for something that if you didn't get him on board you might get something through and it might be okay but why take the risk like the, the amount of value that that person adds to make sure that they're putting a, a, a robust planning statement together. They're working with us as the architect to make sure that we're you know, squeezing as much value out of it as possible and going down the right strategy route of doing so, you know, is, is there a permitted development angle that we can go with? Um, you know, are we right in doing it as a separate PD app and a separate full app? You know, there's, there's various ways that you can do it and you need that expertise on board to help guide you. And that 2000 pounds, realistically is negligible and it's negligible even more so if you don't do it and you get rejected if you've gone through this whole process gone through let's say four months of design and planning to come out the other side with a refusal how much have you how much have you spent on bridging finance in those four months you've probably spent 10 grand in bridging finance and you know we had a, a project last year where it came to me in may um, saying we want to do this scheme and I said okay here's my fee I think we can get two units out of it and I think that's realistically the max that you're going to get it was a small semi-detached house and he said oh yeah but I've had this other architect who said we can get four units out of it I was like well good luck um Pay for it, come yeah. back to me later when you've got a refusal and sure enough 10 months later they'd gone through planning got rejected four units went went through an appeal got rejected at appeal which it was obviously going to and they came back to me after 10 months. They bought it at an auction on bridging finance. And our fees were probably three grand more than this other guy's. And they would have spent 20 grand in bridging fees. And the time spent, no, not just the time in, sorry, the cost in bridging fees, but the time that they've lost. They could have had it refurbished and, you know, converted. Back on the market. And on the market in that time. So I just feel like too many people see our fees as an additional cost rather than an added value to to your scheme yeah um and i guess that's that's i think that comes through experience you know we work with a lot of experienced developers 
that understand the value that that we bring and are willing to pay for that experience um, yeah. and those are the ones like we talked about earlier sustainability those are the ones that are going to be around for longer longer term basically it's funny you say that because i had um, a good friend of mine matthew state who's a commercial solicitor um, on the podcast not so long ago and he said a similar sort of thing he, well, he says the same thing to me all the time you know sometimes people have got to have a bad experience to to then see the, the realize good, realize have the value that, that you can add and um, i've certainly had that in my industry I, I i don't get it so much anymore um and i think that's because of you know as we were saying earlier hopefully my presence on social media means that i get a lot of people that come to me and just just want me to, to do some work for them um but but certainly back in the day, I'd, I'd get a lot of people that wouldn't see the value that I can add in terms of, like you say, they'd rather take the risk that they weren't going to get the best bridging or the best commercial mortgage, whatever it might be, come back to me and say, well, what would you have done here? And I go, well, I would have done this and then saved you X amount of pounds. Um, and that, that there has been one that's happened quite recently, actually, where a client of mine, who I thought was a long-term client, she she went and just another broker, you know, waved a shiny penny in her, in her, in her face um yeah. and she, she went with them and it didn't really didn't really did not work out um so hopefully i've got a client for life now off the back of that but it's, it is funny isn't it how annoyingly in what we do you the proof is in the pudding and sometimes yeah. they need to taste a horrible pudding first <laughs> it's so difficult to prove the value that you can add yeah until something goes wrong or you've gone through a process where you've seen the difference whereas reality is that you know our clients are only going to come to us once for that project there's no way of really telling how much value we would have given compared to another one because you know they've gone with that other person and that's it and it's just i guess for us and what we spoke about earlier in terms of coming back to the brand and the company that you build you know it's you need to project the ability to add that value and the brand needs to represent everything about what you do and the bigger the the well the, the more you can enforce that into people and the more you can be in people's brains and, and show them how you're doing that for other clients the more likelihood is it that, that they're going to come you know kind of come to you for that service so that's essentially what we're trying to do with aura it's just getting people's faces show them what we're doing um and hopefully they'll they'll come and use us but yeah i mean it means you don't have to sell and i think that 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 becomes actually a real benefit to any business is when you when you get to the point where you don't have to sell anymore um that that's a real trigger point and not not to say that i don't do the occasional bit of selling now um certainly on the the, the social media business but but it's you, are a bit, you have to sell something yeah but if if you can have somebody actually come to you because they they've trusted maybe they've had that that um the, the seven touch points as, as they say in sort of marketing terms they've had that they've gone through that they've made the decision in their head that that you're the firm for them or you're the person for them to advise them on that then um then it makes life easier and actually that that working relationship can often be a lot better so you don't have to go through that process first you can just get into the nitty-gritty of really just giving them that service and certainly something i've seen in the, in the past few months um has, has kind of gone through that, from that that all definitely does take time as well you know it's we're almost three years in and um i feel like we're just about getting to that that position but it takes time it takes it takes some bad projects it takes some you know difficult times and some difficult um you know is most businesses aren't going to turn around a profit in their first year and yeah I think, you know i went in pretty gun ho sort of thinking oh you know we're going to be 
million pound company in three years and you know it's just not it's not really feasible um but again uh, it's it's that consistent growth you know the past three years we have grown 100 percent, and that's not sustainable but it shows that that we're on the right track so yeah it's it, business is hard i think that's that's the thing that i've learned the most over the past three years it bloody hard yeah of course it is absolutely but well, one, one, one thing i did really want to ask you um and i suppose this is off the back of my uh, me sort of telling you my my first experience with, with an architect has there been um, an example that you can think of where you know somebody has come to you maybe they've been to another um another uh, architect or something like that and then you've gone in and gone you could do this a million times better and or or maybe not a million but certainly certainly better than, than what they were thinking of doing and actually have, have ended up giving them a, a ton of value yeah quite you know it happens it happens fairly often i think and, and people probably probably looked at some of our stuff and said they could have done it a different way i think when you're when you're engrossed in some projects so long and you're staring at the same thing over and over you can become complacent and might miss a trick so i look at a lot of other architect schemes or other developments where i say well why haven't they done that why haven't they done this now it's often because i'm looking at it with a fresh pair of eyes and that that is often where the, the best value comes from i think when you are working on something for so long it you just go through the motions so having a fresh set of eyes whether that be your your boss or you know someone else looking over it is um is always a good thing to do we've got a scheme in um in croydon which we've just gone through at the moment where we've added a fair amount of value we pretty much doubled the floor space on a conversion that um we wow uh, doing under prior approval so um i think we went from about 3,000, no, about 4,000 square foot to, no, we increased about 60%, I think. So from about 3,000 square foot to about 5,000 square foot. Um, it had prior approval for six units. Um, we've now got to 13 units for the conversion and we've got a new build of eight units on the same site as well. Now that's, that was part of the developer's strategy um, to go in for something smaller, but what we didn't have was the, the extra mezzanine levels and the extra you know first floor um space which really kind of squeezed as much value out of it as possible but yeah i was gonna to, i was sorry i was gonna ask you just on that it's just it's, it's kind of the, the mechanics of it how you would actually do that because some people might be listening in and go well hang on if there's only enough space for six how do you suddenly sort of triple that you know how, how does yeah, that happen it's basically you know people i guess most people look at a floor plan and figure out how try try to think about how to to rearrange the space and get more out of it i think the the beauty of of what an architect will do is think not just in 2d but in volumetrically in 3d and look at any way possible to go out to go down to go up in this circumstance we couldn't extend the envelope anymore because it was prior approval so everything had to go within that shell but what we could do is dig down so it already had high ceiling heights in certain locations. So it was like, right, if we lower the floor level by 1500 mil, maybe six, um, six foot, um, then we can actually get extra mezzanine levels in where the ceiling heights were, were even higher um, and get extra floor space that way. So it was just thinking a little bit more volumetrically, more so than just looking at a floor space, trying to rearrange that, that layout. And that's, 
that's the value that you get from a you know someone that can go in and and think a bit more creatively yeah that's so you know that i didn't even you saying that i wouldn't even have thought of that that that's even something that, that you would do adding in mezzanine levels all that kind of stuff i just i like mezzanine levels anyway because i think they look funky um yeah, but i don't think of them as, as adding to the to the uh the square footage so yeah I, i've learned something today uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, someone this morning for a very similar scheme as a, as a b1c um prior approval scheme where getting light down into the ground floor it w was very difficult because it had constraints on on three sides and i said you know fine that's you know looking at the shell it's difficult to get windows in those elevations because you've got gardens either side and you can't punch windows into it but if you start taking chunks out of that volume and creating light wells and um you know use things like glass roof lights and um uh, yeah, light wells to get light deeper down into that space, you might lose a bit of floor space in terms of GIA, but you're making that deep ground floor space usable GIA. So you might up the value of that rear ground floor space, but take away some of the other space. But if it makes the project work and you can get light into the places that you need to get light, then why wouldn't you do that? And again, that's just thinking a little bit more um, in 3D and uh, solving problems to try and figure out how best to use the space. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I've never, I've never even thought of it in in this kind of way. I suppose my experience with our architects has been I've kind of let, left them to it and they they just get on with it. And especially that de the development I was talking about, you know, my dad's a builder, so he was kind of dealing with that anyway. I just raised the finance, so that was my job. Um, yeah. And uh, in fact, if he knew how easy it was for me to do that, <laughs> then um, then I, he, he, I probably shouldn't have got as big a piece of the pie as I did. <laughs> Hopefully, he doesn't listen to podcasts. Um, but um, but look, um, sorry, go on. We, then. What one thing I learned at the Berkeley Group um, that I say to to most people and most developers that I work with from a, from an architectural perspective is you need to be pushing me as the architect in so my role with the Berkeley group was as, as a technical manager. So I basically, you know, we, we didn't have in-house architects, engineers, it was all outsourced. So they were all consultants working for us and a technical manager basically project manages and oversees that process. So we direct the architect, the engineer, the, um, the landscape architects, the m and &E engineers, and we push them to and drive them to, to make the best from the scheme. So the, the biggest question I used to ask was why? Why are we doing that? And why can't we do it this way? If they've got a good solution for me, then, you know, fine. But more often than not, what they'll turn around and say is, well, uh, yeah, okay, that, yeah, that does actually work. And it's that fresh set of eyes and somebody questioning what they've done that pushes boundaries and drives them to a better design. Mm -hmm. and, and you as a property developer, or me as a property developer, that should be your role you know has you're putting your trust in the architect you're putting your trust in the engineer are they really do they really have your sort of true benefits like at heart like they, they're, they're working for their fee so you need to make they're, they're, they're pushing the boundaries for you and you're only going to get to that if you push them and if you ask why and if you say well why aren't we doing it like this and and you know, I implore every every budding you know developer to push your consultants and ask the questions because otherwise you're probably missing out on a hell of a lot of value. Well, you're learning as well. You know, I I I one thing I've discovered, I suppose, a little bit more more recently, maybe, 
um, is that I have a lot of clients who I'll use certain jargon with or I'll say certain things and I don't know what it is maybe there's just something in the water people are voicing voicing things a little bit more now than they were previously but I'm getting people pushed back what does that mean explain that better to me um, mm-hmm. because it's their opportunity to learn the process and I say this to, to clients as well your power team is there to to not just actually provide that service that they're there for but to teach you a little bit to to um to get to give you to be transparent show you the process so that you better understand it all so that your number one your expectations are at the right level but also you know with future projects you know if they learn through you that something works um they can then spot that as a potential opportunity again on a, on a future project and that just benefits everyone and it's the same you know same with me they, they think okay well um i didn't realize that we could do this particular thing to hurry our process up with game finance or, or whatever it is so it's a learning curve for them as well yeah and you, sh- you should be constantly trying to learn i think every day is a school day and if it's not then you're you're probably not doing something right or you're not you're not asking the right questions and pushing the boundaries enough we're probably preaching to the converted on that because that's why people are listening to the to the podcast i suppose um but, but look ben i've um i've really really enjoyed this podcast actually it's been one of my faves because uh because i've just got so much out of it myself and there's been a few nuggets there at the end i'm definitely gonna have to put it in the show notes right make sure you listen to the end of this one don't don't get off your treadmill or whatever you're doing halfway through get to the get to the end because there's some some nuggets at the end it's been 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 great but look um I'm, I'm conscious that people are going to want to get in touch with you. So what's the best way in which they can, they can do that? Cause you've already spoken that you're pretty hot when it comes to social media. Yeah. All, all over social media. So Ben Richards underscore property, um, Aura homes is, is my business. Um, you can find us at Aura architecture and interiors on Facebook. Ben Richards is my name. So Facebook, Ben Richards, LinkedIn, um, relatively active on LinkedIn. Um, also Ben Richards at AuraHomes.co.uk is my email address um and ben at expropertyinvestments.com is um our development company so yeah happily talk through any um any questions anyone has happily have a chat you know everyone's locked in their house now i seem to be constantly wearing my zoom headphones and and mic um so booking a booking a call and we can have a a chat Fantastic. Now I'll make sure that that's all, all in the show notes so that when the, if people haven't had a chance to note those down because they are on the treadmill still or something like that, um, then they can, they can click on those links. But, um, but Ben, I always finish off the podcast with probably the most important question in, in the world because I've, I've realised recently in lockdown that um, I mean, I've come to terms with, with the fact that I'm a chocoholic. So I'm very, very keen to hear... Um, well, this, this is, it's funny, it's mutated into two questions. So the question originally was, what is your favourite chocolate bar, which you can, right. you can now answer for us, put you on yeah. the spot. Uh, it's a very, very easy question. So I don't know if you saw my Instagram story from about a week ago, but uh, my mum my sent me a little Easter um, treat. I opened it up and it was a big like PG Tips um, box. I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> opened it up. There were 10 packs of Whisper Golds, uh, 10 months multi-pack of whisper so i got 40 whisper golds to eat on my wow. table i so, see do you know i i i like whisper golds but they make me feel a bit sick i it's like it's, yeah it's like a, a it's it's like a tease I'd, I'd, I'd eat many a day if um i thought it was good for me but i know better so the, the set the, the sort of the follow-up to that is um so when you got those um what did you do with them did they go in the cupboard or did they go in the fridge Oh, cupboard they never go in the fridge no you, can, you can't you can't chill 
chocolate no thank you so much you everyone else I, I'm, I'm a room temperature chocolate guy i like to yeah. just bite into it i don't want to break my teeth yeah yeah and i've it been getting is. loads everyone's been saying to me no no i put it i put it in the fridge my everyone that i'm in the, in a house, household with at the moment the indoors and my wife all in the fridge so i have my oh, own my stash life. now jack and i had this conversation about easter eggs the other day because like the the hollow chocolate in easter eggs is the best chocolate ever and i was like yeah. Why is this? Apparently, according to Jack, it's because it's because of the like, the the how thin it is. It melts in the mouth a lot easier. Yeah, a lot quicker. Um, and I, yeah, I I I, 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 I am not afraid to admit that I did the the Easter dash after after Easter weekend. Went round to whatever the supermarket was. I can't remember which one it was. And mm. every, all the Easter eggs are like ten p. And I just I yeah. bought <laughs> I put so much chocolate. <laughs> brought brought me home two whisper gold eggs. Oh. So polish those off. Didn't and even I, know you could I, get a whisper gold egg. That's um Yeah, yeah. It obviously it was just a normal dairy milk egg, but it came with two bars of whisper. Yeah. Happy days. Which probably ended up costing less than buying two bars of whispers, which is that's why I love Easter. Because you could yeah, just yeah. buy so much chocolate for less than it usually would be. I bought five cream eggs for twelve P a pop. Oh, yeah, cream cream eggs are cream eggs are up there. But it's it's one of my life's goals to create an Easter egg sized um cream egg that that'll happen one day it's gonna i'll have it'll probably be the day before i have a heart attack but um <laughs> but it's but it's gonna happen but um but look i'm glad i've got an uh another non-fridge chocolate eater um that i can call call my in one of my friends so thanks very much for that ben you could delete all the other podcasts where they've said cold oh it's gone they're, they're gone they're gone and they're, they're out they're out the diary they're out the uh, out of the phone but off the christmas card list 100 <laughs> <laughs> percent. but ben thanks ever so much for, for coming on today it's been an absolute pleasure and um you can go out and enjoy the sun now nice one speak soon cheers well there you have it another one bites the dust as they say but let me ask you a quick question did you enjoy this episode if so please do subscribe to the podcast as well as rating and reviewing it. This really does help me get my podcast out to more people and I'll be eternally grateful. As well as this, are you in property and wondering what to do at the moment? Well, if that's the case, I've set up a fantastic new Facebook group called Social Media for Property Investors. Check out the link in the show notes below and join us where we will discuss all the things that you need to know to smash it on social media. See you later.